0: Welcome to a podcast produced by students of the MBA program here at the Ivy Business School in London, Ontario, Canada. Our program zone, Daniela Barros and Constantine Robin, the vice president and president of our school's energy club, had the pleasure recently of interviewing Goldie Hyder, the president and CEO of the Business Council of Canada. In that interview, which we're about to share with you, Goldie provided some of his insights as we head towards the Canadian federal election on October 21st.
1: Goldie, thank you so much for taking the time and coming here to talk to us today. It means a lot to have a leader like yourself come and discuss an important topic such as energy, and mostly in the context of the federal election coming up.
0: Well, it's great to be here, thanks for having me.
1: So we are going to start this by putting a general setting to make sure people know why you're here and why we invited you specifically to have this conversation with us. As the CEO of Business Council of Canada, what kind of interactions do you have with the energy industry regularly?
0: well quite a bit uh, given the fact that uh, i have many many members that come from the sector uh, not just uh, in alberta but but beyond i think one of the one of the perceptions that we have to um, uh, eradicate here is that the energy industry is a you know an alberta thing uh, or it's a western thing the reality is uh, you know energy is across the country and we have to think of it much more as a national natural resource than a you know a regional uh, resource.
1: I really like that thought, and it's very true. Constantine and I both lived in Calgary for a while, and we find that moving to Ontario is a little bit different.
0: Well, Calgary is actually home for me originally. I don't know if you knew that, but uh, lived twenty-five years of my life there in Alberta, and I certainly saw the uh, ups and downs that the energy sector can go through, uh, and more often than not, not of its own doing, and it's just one of the realities of being in a. Uh, in a natural resource space, you are sort of beholden to the global uh, ups and downs uh, that, that take place. But I think that um, in, in Canada, you know, we have um, uh, almost quietly in an unrealized way benefited enormously uh, from the richness of our natural resources. And it's to such a point, I think we just take it for granted. And we're at that Pivotal moment now, where a conversation like this is even necessary, and it's kind of odd that where it's you know this conversation is necessary, given that we are Canada, <laughs> we uh, know how to um, extract our resources and develop them uh, in a responsible way. We have um, extensive regulation, we have extensive oversight, uh, we have accountability through a variety of different um, uh, entities, whether it's your employees or whether it's your customer, whether it's your shareholder, whether it's your regulator. And yet, somehow, we have this uh, gold star standing around the world, but we're you know, not seeing the same light right here in our own country, which I find perplexing.
1: Yes, I agree. Everybody has benefited from it for so long, and we find here today having these debates of whether it is good or not, when it has benefited the whole country for so long.
0: And you know, in fairness, and I, and my, I've said this to my members, so I'm not speaking out of turn here. But um, you know, we we we, do, we should look back a little bit and say, how did it get there? Like, why did it get to this place? Um, it's quite clear that um, you know, all around us here, while businesses are busy doing what they do, running their businesses, the environment changed around us. And I don't just mean the physical environment; I mean the regulatory environment, the political environment, and the environment in which power really shifted away from sort of traditional institutional uh, oversight to much more public. And, um, you know, certainly the, the, the uh, uh, rise, if you will, of movements and, and really, uh, you know, trying to consume, uh, I use the word hijack and everybody gets mad, but I mean, it feels like a hijacking to me because it's overwhelmingly become the discourse uh, in our media uh, in our schools <laughs> and in other places, and I feel like we've lost our ability to have sensible conversations about how to reconcile the importance of the natural resources that we have, while obviously, uh, you know doing so in the most environmentally friendly and sustainable way, which which is a Canadian trait. and we would we care about that and we would do that well.
1: Let's take it a bit more towards Canadian energy specifically. In your opinion, what are some of the strengths and weaknesses in our energy environment today?
0: Well, as I said, I think for starters, we've lost the ability to have um, conversations and an honest dialogue with people who we may disagree with. And that's That's okay. I mean, I think we should be able to sit down and have discourse with the environmentalists, um, the indigenous communities, uh, you know, pro-pipeline people, anti-pipeline people, uh, the provincial leadership versus the federal leadership, regulators. Uh, I think that a lot more can be accomplished if we actually sit down and listen to each other and talk to each other and have, uh, you know, an objective of of getting to a better place than where we currently are. I mean, look, on any issue, on any given issue, we will have people at the 10% at the extreme on one end and 10% at the extreme on the other end. But, you know, my, my father likes to say Canadians are people of the radical middle and that somehow they will find that that center, that sweet spot where we can compromise, where we can find a way forward. And I, and I think it's unfortunate that we've lost the way to do that and it's really become very tribal uh, in our in our conversations. My own um, sense is, is that, We should never, ever underestimate the collective wisdom of Canadian people to give you the right answer if they are respected, uh, if the information is shared with them in an honest, transparent way. If they're allowed to have an argument, if they're allowed to debate, if they're allowed to discuss, history shows that Canadians usually find the right answer. And I'm afraid we've, we've not had that opportunity to really engage them because we have gone so tribal at both ends.
1: So obviously you are of the belief that we will find this medium eventually.
0: I think it's more of the hope than I am of the belief. I, I am optimistic, you know, I, I, as I said, history shows that when Canadians uh, get engaged and if there is a, a, you, know, a where, you know, we have an upcoming election here, uh, in that discourse, if there were to be a, a ballot question forming uh, or potentially around, you know, do you believe that Canadian natural resources can be responsibly developed and shared both nationally and internationally? And should we be doing that to grow our economy, to maintain our quality of life and our standard of living? Um, I think, as I said, Canadians would say yes, and but under these conditions. And to me, that's the kind of conversation we should be having.
1: We are getting to this point, and I think you alluded to this, which are these conditions, anything that is what changes. Which, with each federal election, it seems that each party has their own beliefs and they're quite opposite from each other. And these conditions do change every time that there is a change in power in politics. How can we reach conditions that satisfy everybody? We have political parties that want to repeal the Trans Mountain Pipeline project while others want to see it completed. So how can we get into the middle? How can we have this conversation?
0: Well, there's an old saying, governing is hard. (laughs) And I think that what we are most in in search of and need of is leadership. Uh, I say that with great respect to people who seek public life and public office and and end up leading parties. But what I have seen over time is a gradual uh, erosion of what leadership meant to me in my time and what leadership means to you in your time. And I think that, um, you know, what we're looking for is... Uh, you know, that, that voice of that pragmatic centre, that, that moderate uh, Canadian uh, centre that comes forward and says, um, we can do both. Uh, we are capable of being able to develop our natural resources. And I should say for your listeners' benefit, you know, we often think of energy and we go straight to oil and gas. But for me, if we look at it in the context of natural resources, we're talking about, you know, our ability to do forestry, uh, agriculture, Hydro, the Ring of Fire, our mineral deposits that are around the. This is this is much more than oil and gas, uh, and none of this excludes renewables. Um, and I don't think that uh, you know because there has been s- such a lack of an opportunity to have rational, thoughtful, you know, s- sit-down type of discussions and debates. The messages are not getting out. You know, it's the old saying: safe landings don't get reported; only crashes do. So yes. You know, there'll be a, an incident with a, with, a, with a pipeline or with a railed car or with a truck or something else. And we lose all our sensibilities to talk about, well, let's discuss, like, what are the better ways? What are the ways in which, you know, we can, re- we can move um, products and, 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 and goods around the country responsibly? I, I, I often say that what we underestimate is how important it is to the companies to make sure that they do their job to the best of their ability to deliver products safely, uh, to prevent catastrophe or crises or even the smallest leak possible if for no other reason, because it's in their selfish interest. You know, I mean, it's not good for business. It's not good for the reputation. uh, It's not good for the customer, not good for the stock price, not good for your insurance that has to cover those costs. Nobody wants things to happen. And so you can imagine how hard and how much emphasis goes into uh, companies to ensure that they're doing everything that they possibly can uh, to provide the, the safety for the product, for the people, and they never get the credit for that. I find, and I, and I think that part of the onus falls on this, the sectors. In many ways, they've been busy doing what they do, and they've forgotten, to some extent, in the past, to uh, communicate. Uh, Here are the things that we're doing to make sure that our resources are being developed responsibly. Now, you're getting a lot more of that more recently. Um, but, but as I said, it was probably because before, you know, this this advent of the of the rise of the public, if you will, through social media and so forth, everybody just went about their business. Regulators did what regulators do, governments did what governments do, companies did what companies did, right? And now we're all in a place where, uh, you know, uh, someone running a website out of their basement can obstruct your multi-billion dollar business if they want to.
1: That is absolutely true. I know for a fact there's hundreds of millions of pipelines around the country, but then one pipeline gets the publicity as such as the Trans Mountain Pipeline and it becomes a big deal and a big debate, not just in politics, but for the public. And they think that this is a brand new pipeline when they don't know that there's already a pipeline in place. Right underneath your feet. It. The
0: odds are pretty high. There's one right underneath your feet. And I, and I find it particularly rich that um, uh, a lot of this opposition comes out of the United States. Uh, given the fact that even under President Obama's time, you know, sort of the, uh, you know, the champion of climate change, if you will, they built like 10 pipelines. They just didn't build Keystone. <laughs> you know, um, there's a reason for that. And I think we have to be much smarter than we have been in, in realizing that we're in a very competitive global environment. Um, while our pipelines were being stopped, you know the other countries were developing their 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 capacity. They were exploring and doing uh, shale and and other things. And uh, guess what? They're exporting. Uh, guess what? They've been buying our product at a discount. Uh, the uh, the tragedy here is is they bought it, refined it, and sold it back to some of our own family members in the maritimes and others uh, at a markup. And that's absurd uh, in my mind. It's equally absurd to believe that. Uh, keeping an asset like that in the ground is going to somehow make the issue of climate change better when you consider that the demand for oil and this is not me saying, this, this is the OECD and others saying this, the demand for oil over the next 30 years is like a straight line up. I mean you've got people getting cars in India, you've got people getting more cars in, in parts of Asia that, where they don't normally drive before. You've got obviously the middle class and large uh, large economies like China and others that continue to you know, go from one car in some cases get two now. That was unheard of 30 years ago. And so so the demand is there. We can stick our head in the sand if we like, pardon the pun. But the reality is they're going to get that oil from somewhere. And the tragedy here is for all of those who are concerned about greenhouse gas emissions is it's going to be coming from places where they're probably less concerned about greenhouse gas emissions, where the same kind of level of scrutiny, the regulatory oversight, the um, uh, desire to innovate is not the same. Uh, you look at our members in, in the oil and gas industry uh, in Alberta, you know, you know, about 10 years ago, it would take about $80 a barrel to get uh, oil out of the sand um, and, and, and export it. And, and obviously with, with profit. It's down to about 50, some, sometimes less than that now. Well, that didn't happen by accident. That was innovation. That was designed to say, how can we do a better job, you know, to keep costs down, uh, to be uh, sensitive to the, to the environment, uh, to um, obviously in this case separately from price, but engage the indigenous communities there's so much effort that's taking place that I think just it, we have to punch out that message. So you look at the millennial generation, and uh, obviously, you know, climate change is a, is, is a very, if not the most important uh, issue of their time. I have three daughters between the ages of 20 and 24, so I certainly see um, their concerns about what's taking place around them. But I will be honest with you, I sit down with them and I also talk about the importance um, of all the other issues that they care about. You know, well, what kind of a job will I have? Um, you know, wh- where will I um, live? Uh, what kind will I be able to buy a house? Uh, you know, will I ever be debt free in my life? You know, Will, will um, the infrastructure ever get better around me here? Whether it's, you know, um, as you travel more, you realize that our infrastructure is nowhere near as good as it is in many other parts of the world. So, you know, my kids think about those things. And I say, it, you know, those two things have to find a happy medium. Um, you know, climate change and growing your economy can't be mutually exclusive exercises. You know, this is very much about how do we responsibly grow our economy so that millennials can enjoy the quality of life and the standard of living. I mean, you know, we're, I'm, I'm often giving presentations, including at Ivy, where I said sorry to the people in the room. Sorry on behalf of my generation that we're the first generation about to leave behind for you a situation worse than we found it. Whether it's in the climate, but also on fiscal questions about deficits and debts and so forth, so and infrastructure and and and, uh, and, the, and the mess that the, that is the world, which is subject for another podcast, I'm sure. I said sorry, you know. But at the same time, you know, we're doing all that we can to say let's make sure that we uh, grow the economy and do everything that we can to speak to a lot of those um, to the angst that I just described that millennials are facing, and it's hard to do if if it's just you know. It's all one agenda, one issue all the time. And I think that we lose perspective because... There are so many people in the environmental movement who support the natural the development of our natural resources and, and, and I applaud them. There are so many indigenous communities that have endorsed, want to piece of, want to own um, are some a uh, stake in some of our natural resource projects. So it is not a, a all or all against uh, you know, uh, uh, on one side and, and, and everybody else on the other. It is very much um, trying to ensure that there's leadership that we can have the conversations in a responsible respectful way and we can have that dialogue and i encourage the 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 listeners here as 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 largely millennials to um, you know call on your political leaders to do that don't let the rhetoric of you're for the carbon tax you're against the carbon tax become a, a defining debate that's a that's a false debate, and and I think that our millennial uh, voters should be out there asking these questions, saying, "I understand your point of view on this issue, but what are you going to do on that issue? Because you can't. It's not all one way. It's not all one one uh, one issue. And and if it is, then I think we have a, a big problem. Whether that issue is all economy or all environment, I think both are wrong. You must have a reconciliation between the two of those.
1: Those are really fantastic points, Goldie. One of the things that it reminds me of when you were talking about this is that thing that companies are creating, such as this social license to operate. And this is the first step to really start involving the public and other people. I think it is a good initiative and a good first step.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the, you, you know, I've, I've given talks on the issue of social license. I find it a bit of a misnomer, uh, in part because there's no place anybody goes to apply for one. There's um, uh, no guarantee that when you receive it on a project in 2015 that that social license is valid in 2019, you know. And so that's part of the challenges is it's, 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 it's hard to grasp. And I think that is one of the things we have to watch for from a regulatory perspective. And when we had a very controversial bill make its way through Parliament in the last session called Bill C-69. And, um, you know, we were, we were very active behind the scenes uh, on that bill, trying to make it better than it was. And I think we did make it better than it originally was. But it still fell short uh, in terms of our confidence that if you are an investor uh, from outside of Canada, or even inside Canada, and you're looking at the regulatory regimes, and you're looking at the history of where we've been, and you're looking at a, at a, at a regulatory process in which after having gone through an entire regulatory process, it's still subject to a cabinet override, a cabinet veto, and with great respect to cabinet, most of them aren't engineers, most of them don't know how a project works, and somehow the politics of this could override something like that. Well, that gets very hard to, to, to attract capital. And so we have to be very careful, because there's an old saying in, in, in politics, but it applies in business just as much. Money follows message. You get the message wrong, and the money may or may not come. Now, we'll find out. I, I can tell you this. I hope I'm wrong. I hope this bill is a magnet for, for capital. But the early indications are, unfortunately, it's not going to be. And that's something we need to pay close attention to because even for those who want to develop the natural resources and, and want to see Canada grow, I mean, take one of my members in in uh, in TransCanada Pipelines, right? Um, they spent about $30 billion dollars in their capital investments. Uh, 15 billion of that is happening in Canada, you know? Um, And over time, if anybody starts shifting that capital out, well, those are Canadian jobs. Those are Canadian taxes. Those are Canadian social programs that are being exposed. And these aren't, you know, threats. I mean, these businesses are, have a duty to, to uh, their shareholder. They have a duty to their employees. They have a duty to their community and their country, and they're trying their best to, to fit all that together. But at some point in time, if you're starting to feel, you know, it's not, you're unwelcome or your projects here are going to take way longer to get started than they would somewhere else. What would you do? You know, if somebody said to you, you can't, you know, buy, uh, buy this laptop here today, but you would be able to get it in two years, but it's available <laughs> just about everywhere else in the world. Something tells me you would just go buy it somewhere else.
1: That is a really good segue for me to ask you about the controversial, again, project of Trans Mountain Pipeline, and what are some of the consequences and the message we would be sending to the world and investors and shareholders, stakeholders, everybody involved, if this project is not done after it has had an approval of a federal permit?
0: Great question. Uh, Great question, because the, the TMX pipeline has become about much more than the TMX pipeline. This has now become a symbol. Uh, it has become the poster child, uh, if you will, for whether Canada is serious uh, about attracting foreign investment and, and uh, developing the capacity to get its product to market. Because if it is not, if it chooses by its own you know doing to essentially lock its resources, uh, in, in not even sharing them in the country, just being able to access whatever existing infrastructure we do have, uh, that is a recipe for disaster when it comes to foreign investment we need capital. Uh, we've already seen, a, a, I'm not gonna overstate it, but certainly an exodus, I was gonna say mass, but an exodus uh, from, the, from the oil sands. Uh, we have seen consolidation taking place to, to, to create some um, you know, r- rationality in, in how to fund these, in fund these, fund these projects. Um, and the tragedy here is, is that, to me, if you can't twin a pipeline, We're not talking about a brand new route. We're not talking about clearing forests. We're not talking about going under any new water. We're not talking about any of that. We're talking about twinning a pipeline. It's like saying you can't twin your highway, you know? And I often say, I'm not sure today in 2019 we would have a national railway system, that we would have a national highway system. What kind of a country would we be if we weren't connected to be able to to move around? Well, the same thing applies, is what kind of a country are you if you can't move your own products, never mind internationally, even to your own people? It just is mind-bogglingly absurd. And I have to say, only in Canada do I think that could happen. And here we are.
1: Another one of my concerns is that we can't even move it within our own country, but now we have one customer for our products. For petroleum and gas, the major customer we have is the U.S. And as you mentioned before, the U.S. is a net exporter today. Which
0: makes it a competitor, not just a customer.
1: Correct. So now what are we going to do with all these great resources we have as a country? As you said, we're producing this in a responsible and social way, but we can't sell it anywhere without this infrastructure project. So what is our alternative? Do we stop producing this? what are we going to do as a country if we can't use what we have to grow?
0: Can I have deafening silence on this radio, on this podcast? Because like, that's the question of your time. I mean, what are we going to do? You know, uh, this is about wealth creation, uh, about responsible wealth creation. It's about maintaining and hopefully improving our quality of life and our standard of living. And, you know, we are being somewhat Pollyannish Uh, about this issue as we are on on, on many other issues. And I think it's in part because our politics has become so polarized and it's reflected in the social media that many of you in millennia live live in and live on. Um, We've lost our center. We've lost our balance. We've lost our ability to bring forward, uh, you know, a, a responsible debate that allows people of reasonable, you know, who disagree, to have a place to go and talk, and that's why I accepted your invite to, to come. To tell you the truth, is like I, I I'm hopeful more so in the next generation than I'm in my own. Uh, I think we need you to understand. This is about you. This is about what quality of life and what standard of living you're going to have. Uh, most of us are going to be all right because we've built up enough deficit or debt. <laughs> you know, we're living off all of that right now in our, in our governments. But we're leaving that behind for you. And there's just something personally for me, and I think for many, immoral about that. You know, I mean, I've been raised to like have no deficit, have no debt. And yet we're allowing our governments to have runaway deficits or runaway debt. And we're saying to you, good luck with that. And, and the irony is many people are saying, we're doing it for you. Well, it doesn't feel like we're doing it for you. I think we're abdicating our responsibility on how do you grow our economy? How do you make Canada competitive? How do you take advantage of the resources that you have? How do you build the the country for the future? How do you have the infrastructure uh, that's necessary? I mean, I go to universities in Canada, and I go to universities in other parts of the world. Let me tell you, they're not the emerging universities. (laughs) The infrastructure that's there, the capabilities that they're building. And yet, how do we fund for that here in Canada? Right? It has to be from a growing economy. And I think we've gotten to a place where the ideology that's taken shape is really one of redistribution. We're just go- governments are not supposed to be Robin Hood. right? That's not what they're supposed to be doing. And yet, that's where we find ourselves now. It's all about, well, let's just take. And so at the core, uh, this is a cultural issue for Canada. We, we have for too long ripped down our successful we have for too long uh, celebrated mediocrity. It, we need to have um, you know, what we did in the Olympics in Vancouver. We need an own the podium strategy for our economy, for our natural resources, for our country, for our next generation. What are we going to do to win? You know, We're coming here on the eve of, of Bianca winning the US Open. We've had the Raptors win. I mean, Canadians w- can win. And the same thing applies, I think, to our resource industries. We are, in fact, recognized in outside of Canada as global leaders in the ability to to develop our resources in a responsible way. But we need to make sure that in Canada, we give the, these companies the same um, uh, standing, if you will, because I think they worked very hard to, to deserve it.
1: It is very true that... We need to do something. And we find that right now, the East and the West has become East versus West when it comes to this educational of what these natural resources can do for us. What do you suggest? Is there anything you think that we can do to close this gap for millennials or even other generations? What can we do to help create this awareness?
0: You know, uh, so I've lived uh, 25 years of my life in Alberta and 20 years here in Ontario. And so I feel like a quintessential Canadian. I've kind of I've heard it from both sides. I remember growing up in Alberta when then Premier Klein called Easterners bums and scumps, <laughs> right? And uh, and yet here we are living in an, in an environment where so much GDP of Ontario Ontario GDP is actually connected to the oil sands. You know, it's a large. Uh, I've heard figures as big as twenty five billion dollars of Ontario's GDP is connected to. You know the uh, the Alberta oil sands, and so we are very much um, uh, in it together. That story has to come out more. Like I said, at the very thing, at the very thing I, uh, I said at the top is this is not about Alberta. This is not about just oil sands. This is about the country. This is about our national natural resources, and I think we have to have that narrative and that conversation uh, occur, as opposed to uh, you know east and west thing, as as you, as you pointed out. Uh, I know it's not easy for millennials to do, but I, I really think that one of the one of the things Canadians need to do more is travel more in the country. They should travel more outside the country, but they should also travel more in the country. They should see what's going on around the country and talk to each other and learn from each other. Because again, we think about Alberta, but what about Newfoundland? You know, Newfoundland went from a 21% unemployment province to a province that was really humming uh, because of, of resources, you know. Uh, obviously, Quebec is rich with with hydro. Uh, You know, so I I think we need to have a conversation that says, literally in every province, you've got forestry, you've got agriculture, you've got mining, you've got, um, you know, hydro, you've got offshore, you've got fisheries. These are all examples of, of provincial wealth in terms of the resources that we have. Let there be leadership to knit together a national strategy. You know, I would say to Quebec, what do you want? It's naive to say that, you know, you have no oil and you don't want any oil. I mean, then stop driving, <laughs> right? And stop doing a lot of other things, let me tell you, that, that, that oil is, uh, uh, is behind. But if it's what you're after is um, some kind of a national grid around hydro or the capacity to, to grow your economy through um, alternate means, we support that, right? But, but at the same time, you know, we've got to be able to move our resources from, from east to west and west to east. And so that takes leadership. And I think that um, as the world falls apart into all their camps, I worry that we're not immune from that in Canada, that we can fall. I mean, look, uh, you know, I don't want to talk too much about this, but I'm disappointed and concerned as to how many people in Alberta feel that I've reached the end. Uh, they've reached the end. We're done. We're we're done with Canada. I know that's not how they really feel. I know they're angry. I know they're frustrated. And I'm trying to find vehicles in which to create opportunities to 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 bring you know that anger into a better uh, better place. But I understand it. I understand the frustrations. If you feel like you've been a giver, and, and when it comes time to receive support um, and some understanding, you know, there's been over 125,000 jobs lost in uh, lost in Alberta. You know, uh, the vacancy rates are high. And, and 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 yes, they need to diversify their economy. And yes, there probably should be a debate about whether they need a sales tax if they have a revenue problem. And that's what Ontarians say. I've talked to many Ontarians. You know, why don't you have a sales tax? Why haven't you built the pipelines when you could? You know, there's legitimate questions. Have those conversations. But again, leadership is lacking. We've become ghettoized in our politics. And what we're trying to do at the Business Council is is really... Um, assert ourselves in that progressive, moderate, centrist view of the country and and be leaders because our CEOs are leaders and they are respected leaders and they are uh, speaking uh, not just for their companies, which they obviously have an obligation to do, but they're speaking for their country. These are very proud Canadians that I represent and I'm um, you know humbled and thrilled uh, uh, literally every time I interact with them to see what's possible because of who they are and what they're trying to do. And and again, we need to stop demonizing. We need to stop dividing our, our people, large business, small business, you know, East, West. All of these divides are false paradigms. We're Canadian and we should act in the national interest and we should have leadership for the national interest.
1: So one of the first steps to really understand all of his messages in this companies and what we're trying to do in the West is the federal election. The first thing everybody should do is go out and vote first and foremost. But what are some of the things that, in your mind, should be important to every Canadian, in particular, when it comes to energy policy? What are the things we should be looking out for and educating ourselves to make sure we understand what the energy policy really stands for? And how is that going to affect Canada in the future?
0: I think it starts with uh, you know, you know, the macro question to each political party. What is your energy policy? You know, uh, we, we tend to have a lot of discussions and debates on the sort of the story of the day. And we're losing the big picture. And I think that uh, all of these things, as an old saying, of course, that all politics is local. And I don't expect, uh, you know, everybody listening to this podcast uh, being able to have access to the prime minister or to the, to the leaders of the parties. But uh, through your local, you know, candidates, that's your conduit. Uh, asking them at their respective forums or when they come to your door, what's your energy policy? What's the energy policy of your party? How do you intend to pay <laughs> for our growing demands that Canadians have of uh, modernizing our infrastructure? How do you intend to pay for uh, uh, modernizing our healthcare system, which is becoming archaic, uh, you know, literally <laughs> every day? Uh, how do you intend to uh, compete for capital? How do you intend to attract talent uh, to the country? You know, and, and these are all ultimately competitiveness questions. And so I think that the more the people at your door or at your you know, local form are being asked these questions, the more they think, huh? People care about that stuff. It's not that they only care about this one extreme or the other extreme. People like you are asking the questions, you know, what are you doing to make life better for me? is 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 I think um, the conversation that we should be having at, at both the local and national level. And of course, you know, I get the media and the role of the media, and they'll be reporting all the crashes that, that happen on a campaign. But I, I hope that, you know, the listeners here are able to Uh, you know set that aside and kind of punch through and ask legitimate questions of the people who seek public office I mean it's a noble exercise for them to do and they are uh, in in many ways looking for that wisdom from the constituents that they're seeking to represent Uh, it's not that they just have all the ideas and all the answers many people will say what do you what do you hope for what do you want so imagine the surprise in the eyes of many of them if, if millennials start asking about well how are you going to move Canadian product to other parts of the country and, and internationally, and I think that these kinds of questions are are not you know um, front and center certainly in the public domain and and you know sort of the um, the 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 you know the Twitter battles that we see between two extremes I don't think it reflects. Uh, in many ways, the reality f- that most Canadians uh, on the, on their in, uh, in their day-to-day lives uh, behave that way. I don't think they do. I think that the election will be a moment in which they will focus their attention. And when we've got their attention, I hope that we give them the respect uh, of having a, a more mature conversation about something so fundamental as energy policy.
1: One thing that people talk about, they always talk about this incredible renewable projects, which are incredibly interesting and a big part of our country, and we're trying to improve on that. But the question mark is always, where is that money coming from? And I find that the energy industry brings in quite a bit of money for that, and it helps boost our economy in general. And I think it's important that people notice that as well, because we have a lot of dreams about what the country can look like, but unfortunately, at the end, we have to pay for it. And I find that the monetary benefits of some of these projects is natural resources projects can help us with that.
0: Great question again. And I think a lot of this has to do with the, um, you know, and one of those, again, the stories not got out as well. But so many of these energy companies are, in fact, um, on, the, on the journey of becoming renewable energy companies. The amount of investment that's taking place in innovation, the amount of uh, innovation that's happening uh, uh, as a result of that, it's, it's not either or. Uh, companies are doing both and I think that's something we have to realize that yes, it would in an ideal world somewhere down the road here you know we maybe we're off fossil fuels I understand that but the idea that we can just turn it off today and everything will be just fine is absurd Because watch what happens to your gas price when that happens, right? And 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 I think that this is where again the, the Canadians I know understand this we need to do both they're parallel tracks. And maybe, as I said, you know, or someday 30, 40, 50 years down the road, it's quite possible that we've gotten to a place where we've been able to get the innovation to occur, where we can have reliable Resources from a renewable from from renewable source, uh, as opposed to what we're seeing today, which is it's it's not reliable. It'll take a long time, but no one um, believes that it's just about um, you know one. There, I think all of these companies I know when I go out and I meet with the, our CEOs, uh, my staff are always preparing me you know briefing notes on what this company's been doing. And the amount of investments that these companies are making—not uh, just in in CSR, but in innovation, in, in particularly in renewables, uh, in in engagement with the public, engagement with key key audiences like uh, the indigenous communities and and others—it uh, just it just for whatever reason is not understood uh, out there. And I and I really hope that you know the wisdom that the millennial community has is is that they're able to see through. Uh, sort of the rhetoric uh, that uh, occupies our public discourse. And I think that you may be the answer to my question, where is the leadership going to come from? It might be from you. This is a huge ask of you, but in a strange way, I'm I'm looking at the millennial community, and I I, I often um, uh, say in my presentations to them, you give me hope. And I don't just, it's not a throwaway line. I genuinely feel that. I feel that I have a lot more confidence and hope that you will figure it out better than we have because we've not done a very good job of it.
1: Very true. I think the millennial generation is very capable and very eager. One thing that I see that has been a persistent problem in the last couple of years is that companies have been losing this talent. Our generation is very much focused right now in other industries, including renewables, and they're not going back to the natural resources industry where they can help. What can companies do right now and what should they be doing to attract back this eager talent that has left because if we want to help we find that the energy industry is falling a little bit behind in what they can offer and that's why they're losing these people but you need these people to help change and diversify these companies and really keep them as the leaders of tomorrow for energy in general so what are they doing what can they do
0: well a lot of it ties into what we've we've talked about right i mean uh, i'm i'm happy to hear that there are people who are. You know, budding energy sector leaders uh, coming out of the millennial commu- uh, community, and that, you know, the programs and engineering and other things that, that uh, these students take continue to be, um, you know, um, well subscribed because we're going to need you. Uh, we're going to need you. I mean if you know it's another issue here, but one of the great challenges that Canada is going to be facing over the course of the next decade or so uh, is our demographic challenge. And so many of the people, you know some of my very own members and others are not going to be in their roles in 10 years. And so we, we need to have that pipeline, <laughs> pardon the pun here, but we need to have that talent pipeline. Uh, that uh, allows people to enter uh, into the energy sector and to do so with, with pride uh, and to do so with optimism and to do so with the, the, the moral conviction to say, I'm going to make things better. And I, and, I, and I think that that is, again, my hope that the millennial community um, will uh, fight this fight because I think your voice carries a lot, a lot of weight and a lot more weight than perhaps you give yourselves credit for. So for all of you listening out there, please vote.
1: Yes, that's a great point, Goldie. That's what we're trying to do here. Um, One of the last questions we have for you is you are in regular contact with some of the most influential leaders of this country. What are some of the recurring themes that you've been listening to that you think it's worthwhile for these business students at Ivy and everywhere else to really learn about and understand and things that we should be aware of of what's coming down the pipe?
0: There's two things that come out. I mean, I I I've been very blessed to have uh, an opportunity to sit down with all of our former prime ministers that are that are here in Canada, and um, um, you know, one-on-one opportunities with them is is a real is a real gift. There's a lot of wisdom that it, that resides there, and and I'm I'm going to be writing a piece about this leading into the election about what I learned from my sit down with these prime ministers. And most of my agenda was to learn about. You know what did business do well when you were there what can we do differently you know and, and then your observations on sort of the politics of the day and and, and how do we uh, you know positively influenced the uh, trajectory of the country and these conversations were very rich no two were the same but in terms of themes I would say really two jumped out at me one is the need for leadership the, the sense that our governments are becoming movements, that they're followers, not leaders, that um, they're sort of beholden to the latest, you know, uh, campaign uh, that takes place, that what we really need, um, you know, and I'm, I'm a particularly a uh, huge admirer of what, what Mr. Moroni has been able to do for um, the long-term trajectory of this country. Uh, he paid a, you know, a big price for it, um, you know, from, 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 uh, the perspective of his popularity. Um, but as he said many times, you know, in the long run, history is going to, you know, uh, treat me and already is treating me, um, much better than, uh, than the president did at that time. And the reason I think is, is we reward leaders. We reward leadership and that, um, we expect our leaders to actually have, the tough conversations with us, you know, um, if 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 it's kind of like parenting in a way, you know, if I just give you what you want, then then I'm not really doing my job that well, you know. And then uh, over time, if I'm actually tough with you, that so-called tough love thing, you, you actually respect me. You you start figuring out that I'm trying to do some good, and I think that that's what political leadership is lacking today. We need our leaders to be um, you know, have a clear vision for the country, uh, be able to build support for that idea, uh, and not, and not be taken away, um, from, from one extreme or the other extreme. And I, I, I literally say this about all of them to tell you the truth, but, uh, we really need strong leaders. And I think we are in search of, uh, uh the kinds of people, even, you know, uh, if you look at the current prime minister's father, I would say was someone who had a very clear vision for the country. It, a just society, it fit on a button. but you could see the vision. And I think what we're lacking today is that clarity of vision. And I think a lot of our leaders that I spoke with saw over time in, in, over time, interestingly, that it got harder to be that person. You know, I think it was it was easier, perhaps, in the mid '80s for Mr. Moroney than it when it would have been for Mr. Harper at the other end. And so, I think a lot of that has to do with the transfer of power away from institutions to individuals and to networks. And so, how do we square that circle is a, certainly a big theme we cover. And the second one is, um, and, and this is a good thing, uh, but it, but it has its challenges. And that is the the what I just uh, referenced here: the the role of the public has fundamentally changed. Uh, The power has shifted away from sort of the traditional institutions uh, into individuals who then form their networks. And these networks can be local or global. They can be networks of good, networks of evil, uh, networks of everything in between. The challenge becomes, again, and to tie it back to point one, is we still need leadership. And that void of leadership has created a problem for us because it's polarized our politics, which is an un-Canadian way of doing it. But why are we any different than what's taking place in the rest of the world? You know, I think one of the the things that that keeps me up at night the most is uh, this idea that well, Canada's—it's not going to go through any of the things that anywhere else in the world are happening. We won't have the—you know—what's happening in the U.S. We will certainly not do what's going on in Brexit. We won't have the rise of the right as we're seeing in many parts of the European uh, elections. Why not? What makes us so special, you know? And so we have to fight that because you can wake up here one day and suddenly realize that, you know, a Donald Trump-like person has been elected in Canada, and, and there's polling that shows that Canadians could go there quite easily in the absence of someone who gives them you know, better policies, better leadership, and better hope. And so my takeaway from all of those conversations is, is we need strong leadership, a clear vision, and clear direction for the country, and um, you know, and not to prejudge the outcome of this election, but, but let's hope that that's what our leaders deliver us, because that's what they owe us. If they want to represent us, that's what I want to hear from them. That's what you need to hear from them. And that's what all Canadians should, should expect of them.
1: I hear from you a lot of leadership is what's lacking and is something that we need to work on in this country. And maybe this generation needs to be a little bit stronger in that. And being unpopular sometimes just will be the consequences of being a good leader. Any other questions from you? Absolutely, yes.
0: Um, So from my end here, I'd like to understand perhaps a bit more of what do you think are some of the key advantages that Canada has, something that would allow it to compete on the global stage? I know we mentioned a lot of points throughout our discussions here around the potential workforce and enabling some of the natural resources, but any uh, additional thoughts around that? Let me say four very quick things to that. Um, One is uh, obviously given our topic, our natural resources are the envy of the world, right? You know, lose them, use them or lose them. <laughs> and so we've got to get our heads wrapped around that, and we've talked extensively about that. Our second, uh, and these are no particular order, is talent. You know, we're a pro-immigration country. You know, you know, I, I tweeted this weekend about Bianca's victory at the U.S. Open and said, thank you to the immigration system for letting her parents into our country. Just as a reminder for all of those who are, you know, close the doors, anti-immigrant. Who do you think we all are? One way or the other, we're all... <laughs> you know, uh, have, have come from uh, somewhere else. And so that human talent, the ability to attract talent, the ability to nurture that talent has got to be at the core of what we do because someday those natural resources may or may not be as critical to our economy. And where you look at a country like Ireland, where I'm going to have a chance to visit next month, I mean, it's all knowledge. I mean, yes, there's natural resources there in terms of agriculture and other things, but the knowledge economy is what's growing that economy at, at, at record numbers. And so we have to be ready for that day, and talent and, and human resources is a very key component of that. The other thing uh, I would say is uh, our geography is, is rather unique. You know, we share uh, the border with essentially the G1 of the world, you know, uh, at least for now. Uh, the G1 part, the border will always share, I think. And then we've got water all around us. We're strategic assets. I mean, you know, the, the debates that are taking place in the north about uh, how that's going to change the gateway there. Um, we need to take advantage of that, of, that of, of, of where we're located from a proximity. I think Canada has an opportunity, and this is my fourth point, to develop a brand, uh, that's more than nice. That, that, is, that is about being a strategic gateway, that about being a strategic platform or a strategic hub for trade. Uh, we are a trading nation. Uh, we have a, you know, the North American Free Trade Agreement, which hopefully will be up to, uh, you know, uh, the USMCA will be, will be uh, finalized soon. We've got, you know, the, the TPP, uh, excuse me, the CPTPP, um, you know, in, 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 in with about half a billion people in, in, in Asia. We've got another uh, deal in, in Europe with CETA, which is another half a billion people. Uh, you know, I think someday we'll be able to make our way forward with, with uh, in the more difficult uh, trade agreements, such as China and India and others. But right now, we should take full advantage um, of the of our geography uh, and our brand, which I, I think needs to be more than nice. And um, you know, getting this conversation right, it will help us be that a uh, capital magnet talent magnet and a brand that says, wow, Canada's a can-do country, it's a place I can go and, and, and live a high quality of life and contribute to making the world a better place. And, and that's what I hope for. And I think that um, uh, we can do that.
1: Okay, perfect. Thank you, Goldie. And that ties in a lot with, with having a vision for Canada and some form of leadership to, to push that forward. Um, so before, before we, we leave off here, just any
0: last words of wisdom you would have for um, us business students in general? Vote. <laughs> vote vote, and vote often. Well, not the often part, but vote, please. I think, you know, look, uh, we take our democracy for granted. Um, voting is a form of leadership. It's a quiet form of leadership. You're walking into a room, it's just you and your ballot, and you get an opportunity to, uh, to decide who gets to lead you. And so uh, vote, vote smartly, but engage in the election. You know, it's not just about casting the ballot, as important as that is. Engage in the election. Ask some of those tough questions of our political leaders and people who want to represent you. Don't let them tell you what's important to you. You tell them what's important to you. And I think that that will help change the conversation away from these extremes we have found ourselves at and bring ourselves back to, uh, you know, that, that that centrist conversation that Canada's known for. Great. And any any last recommendations for our non-Canadian students, potentially international students who can't vote? Well, thank you for coming to Canada. Uh, you can't vote, but you can certainly get involved. Uh, you're welcome to volunteer and get involved and see how the democratic process uh, works here uh, uh, in Canada, and uh, keep those linkages because I'm, I suspect that many of the people on this in this podcast are going to go on and become leaders in their own right, whether it's political or in, in academia or in business or in other things. And I, I just want to say both thank you for the opportunity and uh, um, you know go get them. All the best. Perfect. Thank, thank you, so you much, Goldie. Goldie. Thank you.